It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 158, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Angie Rains and Miles Okel raised diversified vegetables, rice, and dry beans at Southwind Produce in Rougemont, North Carolina, with sales at five weekly farmer's markets plus wholesale sales to restaurants they have built a viable business in a short amount of time. Angie and Miles take us on a deep dive into their rice and dried bean production, as well as how they market these crops and how they fit into their farm economics and overall farm agroecosystem. We also explore how they stand out in the crowded marketplace in North Carolina's Research Triangle, how getting the business started on an incubator farm let them establish a business with less upfront risk, and how they manage the potential chaos of five farmers markets a week on a small farm. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com And by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easier to work with your buyers, saving time, reducing errors, and increasing your capacity to work with more buyers overall. Farmersweb.com And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic, crop-growing professionals, committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com Angie Rains and Miles Okel, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you. Hey, Chris. So glad you guys could join us today. I'd like to start off by having one or both of you tell us about Southwind Produce, where you guys are located, what you're doing there, and how you're selling it. Yeah, so our farm is on, it's a 47-acre farm in Rougemont, North Carolina, which is outside of Durham uh, and Raleigh area and Chapel Hill. Um, We have been on our land for three years. Um, It's uh, about half of it is woods. We've got about 20 cleared acres, but it's a little bit hilly, so uh, we have 10 um, acres under cultivation. We sell at three farmer's markets um, in the Triangle area, and that's the bulk of our sales. We also um, have started doing some wholesale business, mostly to restaurants. Um, We grow maybe 40 different crops, and this is our third year growing. Um, We grow about an acre of rice. So we sell to markets and restaurants, and we grow about two acres of dried beans in addition to um, our, our mixed vegetables. And did you say about how many acres of vegetables then? So an acre of rice, two acres of dry beans, and then how many of vegetables? I think it was about five or six last year. You know, it's kind of complicated how you measure it. We did some double cropping, and then we we're opening up some new land. and You said that you're kind of coming into your third year of farming on this piece of land, but you guys have been in business for longer than that, right? That's right. So we started the business five years ago. It was actually just me out at the Breeze Incubator Farm in Orange County. And they have a kind of a county-run farm out there where you have access to tractor and cooler space, and you can rent per acre. There were a few farmers out there, but so we, so I, I kind of, I've been working at other farms for a number of years and I felt like it was kind of time to try to get out on my own there. And Angie, we, we hadn't quite committed to farming together yet, but we were both in the area and I went ahead and applied to some markets and signed a lease for the incubator farm. 
and managed to convince Angie to join me over there later in that year. Yeah, we farmed together the second year, and I relied on Angie's help plenty of Friday nights getting ready for Saturday market that first year as well. So thank you, Angie. <laughs> <laughs> are you guys farming full-time? Is, there, is this something that you're, you're making a living at here in your third year of operation on your, your own farm, and, and you said your fifth year as a going concern? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. working. <laughs> um, we, uh, yeah, we're just kind of been slowly, slowly growing, but we're both doing it full time. And we, um, I've actually kind of doubled our acreage of growing every year. And um, we've added a few more markets since then. And so, yeah, we go to five markets a week and we are really doing a lot to get more restaurants. But uh, it's, it's working for us for both full time right now. Yeah, this was the first year where it really felt like we were paying ourselves enough to to feel okay. You know, we weren't really scraping by this this last year. So five farmers markets is a lot of farmers markets. I know a little bit about where you guys are are located, but maybe you could flesh that out a little bit more for us because I think you guys are in the research triangle in North Carolina. Is that right? It is, yeah. So we, um, it's it's three markets, and then on Saturday, and then two of those markets have a midweek that we go to. So one of them is in in Durham, which is one of our big ones, and that market's been around for a, a while. And, and Durham is really kind of blowing up right now with the Research Triangle. That's uh, a really well attended market. The other one is is Carborough, which is one of the oldest markets around here. It's been around, I think, for about thirty years, and that one we've been in for a year now and then Chapel Hill and all of those have big universities and they have, um, you know, people from all over. And so they're all pretty well attended markets and they, they do pretty good for us. You said three farmers markets on Saturday. Did I hear that right? That's right. Yeah. We, uh, Miles goes to the Chapel Hill and I go to Carborough and then We've had Miles's brother, who for a while was working on the farm, would would go to Durham for us. So I mean, it's kind of a, a complicated Friday where we are kind of doling things out and even trying to decide, like, oh, you know, which market, you know, I can sell more radicchio at Carborough, but I think, you know, that lettuce sells better at Durham, and so we. I'm like, <laughs> give me all the red tomatoes for Chapel Hill. <laughs> yeah, so we. Uh, we we just kind of parse it all out and then send three trucks out early Saturday morning. Wow, that just uh, wow. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. I just I'm 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 a little stunned. Yeah, three markets. It's an interesting Saturday. area. It's you know it's um so it's a kind of small towns and they're all about twenty minutes from each other. But there's no real big population center. I guess the closest thing would be Raleigh, and we don't really serve that market. We're more in the uh, Chapel Hill, Durham area and yeah so they're they're smaller markets if we had a bigger one we you know we could just go to one but you know we have to make them all add up together to to make it work we're relatively new at these markets and um it kind of takes people a little while to get to know us and and become regulars because i mean a lot of these customers already have their favorites and when someone new shows up you know, it takes, I'm finding it takes them a few years to come back and start being regular. So with, with the few of these that we've only been to one or two years, we don't really know, you know, our, what, what we can do. And so we're kind of just trying them all out and, um, you know, making ourselves known. And then we may, um, 
go down to fewer, but at this point, it, it really seems to make sense to just see who is interested in our stuff and which areas are, are really the good ones for us. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I, I remember having to do that early on with our farmer's market scene as well, just kind of figuring out where it really made sense to put our effort, as well as, like you said, getting that that recognition at farmer's market, I think is surprisingly important. Now, Angie, you had experience with farmer's markets for a number of years before you came to North Carolina, right? That's right. Well, I um, I was the market master at the DuPont Circle Farmer's Market in D.C., um, and I actually did that before. I did that before I ever even considered being a farmer. I was kind of living up in D.C. and, and not really sure. I, I started getting interesting, interested in agriculture. I didn't really know where I wanted to go. And I started, I got the job at the DuPont Circle Market. And from there, I got to know a lot of the farmers. And actually, one of the farmers there, Heinz Tomet of Next Step Produce, was was always really engaging and would, would talk to me after market every day. And we, you know, got to know each other well. Um, I started volunteering out at his farm every once in a while just to get out of the city and, and, and see what it was all like. And after a few months of that, I think he just really sold me. And I packed up and moved to his farm, <laughs> decided that maybe being a farmer was something I should, should try. So uh, then the next year I was full-time on his farm. And is that where you guys met? Yeah, we met there. I, we actually met at the farmer's market. Heights usually kept separate staff for market and for on the farm, but I would, you know, a few times a year he would run short and I'd go up to market with him. And I met Angie there. And then she came out a few days and we got together after that. Yeah, he may have been one of the reasons why I kept volunteering there <laughs> regularly. Is that, is that may have with finger quotes? It is. Well, I mean, there were a lot. Of it. it was fun, but it made it nice that I got to spend a little more time getting to know Miles. <laughs> and how long were you guys together at Next Step Produce? Um, so Miles was had been there a year already when I started. So then we were there. I, I worked there from March until the end of November, and then we that's when we came down to, to North Carolina after that season ended. So we were together there for about one main season. I'm always curious, you know, for, for being in a position like a, a market master or a market manager at Farmer's Market, did you feel like that, that prepared you to be a better vendor when you started selling on your own? Oh, I think so. I mean, it's so, it's interesting to, to, you know, I mean, my job there was really to just kind of, I mean, I'd, I'd go there and set everything up, but, you know, I, I was, a lot of it was walking around and monitoring and how many people are there and, and trying to like get a good sense of what's engaging people. And, and I had a lot of time to walk around and kind of see where people were stopping and why and, and, and talk to the farmers. And, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting to spend so much time at a market, paying attention to the flow, paying attention to where people's attention goes. Um, and it, you know, it's something that I still look at a lot, <laughs> but, um, yeah. And, and those markets there, I mean, there's some really wonderful farmers who have some really interesting setups. So, you know, I think I even took, was like scribbling notes of like, oh, people really seem to like, you know, where you can pick out, you know, your own 
lettuce into a basket and bag it themselves, or people didn't seem to notice things when they were further back in the corner. And I think we utilize a lot of that in our in our stands. I mean, I'm constantly moving things around to see what people are are noticing, um, which is surprisingly. I've, I'm, I'm always surprised when people don't see things. I, you know, I try to make a big sign, but um, it's markets are busy and it's hard to notice everything. You talk about signage. I, I, I've always laughed because signage is one of those things that I think is is really important, and for a lot of people, simply doesn't matter. You know, yeah. the, the people that need it really need it, but it's really hard to get somebody to notice something through the signage. It's not even there if there's no sign. You know, it can be beautiful and people will just look right over it. Now, you said five farmers markets a week there. Uh-huh. So you've got markets. So you got three of them on Saturday. What other days are you guys doing markets? So on, on Wednesday afternoons, we, we go back to the Carborough and the Durham markets. Um, and the, that one is from, is from three to six in the afternoon. So it's, it's for kind of people picking up their kids from school and it's, it's kind of people coming home from work, but a big reason that we do those markets is our chefs come and, and pick out stuff. So we have, um, a big harvest day where we've gotten all our chef pre-orders in and those are stacked up behind our market booth. And then we'll have, um, you know, a few things there for, for the shoppers, but it, it, it ends up being a really, a really good thing to be in town midweek because a lot of the chefs like to come and they'll buy a little extra and they like to look at what's going on um, at the market. So um, they're, they're not as well attended, but we find that with the restaurant orders, it, they do well for us. So are all of your restaurant orders picked up at Farmer's Market or are you guys running a delivery route in addition to that? We also run delivery. Um, uh, now that the Wednesday market is over, we um, do pretty much an all-afternoon run on Wednesdays. And um, actually, next year, we're kind of thinking about doing uh, pretty much mostly deliveries. Yeah, not all the chefs like to come out, and parking gets a little a little challenging. What kind of breakdown do you guys have between restaurants and farmer's market sales at this point? Um, markets uh, or yeah, market's about 80% of sales and restaurant is about 20% right now. Um, and this was this past year was actually the first one that we really are like looking for new restaurants and, and really trying to go that route. I think for a while we were just too overwhelmed and, you know, just kind of getting our business started. I didn't feel comfortable sending out availability lists and, and promising these things. But this year was the first year we really went for it. And it, it just turned into a really good source of income for us. And, and I really enjoy it. Um, I really like meeting the chefs and talking to them about the food. And so this year, again, we're going to try and then really push uh, for more chefs. We're kind of trying to get better lists. And we're planting um, a little bit less variety this year. And we're looking for more um, you know, flow and more continuity in what we have. Uh, to appeal to chefs um, because we think that that's a really good place to expand, especially, you know, as part of the triangle, we haven't even really been to Raleigh yet, but there's, there's just restaurants opening all the time. And so we're, we're going, yeah, a little harder on that this year. We're going to get to the beans and rice uh, during this conversation, but I'm also curious because on your website, you talk about 
Italian and Japanese specialty varieties. And I'm curious what that looks like for you guys. A big part of it was coming into into these markets where, you know, people have been selling there for 20, 30 years, and we are the new people, and we can't just show up with a bunch of red tomatoes and, and bib lettuce. Um, and so we just kind of been scouring scouring seed catalogs, looking for new varieties of things. And I think what we tend to look for are things that are sort of familiar to people. We don't want to go way out there. Um, but that's also just a little different, something new for them to experiment with. And um, we've found a lot of luck in, in radicchios and, and with just kind of new varieties of cucumbers and um, uh, special peppers. And I just tend to look a lot to Italian cookbooks, to to what's going on with, with a lot of the Asian restaurants that are opening up um, and, uh, you know, seeing what the chefs are serving and, and seeing what seems interesting and new. What have been some of your favorite discoveries in that department? I think that, I mean, we started growing a little bit of the, the spigarello. It's kind of a leaf broccoli that we cut. We cut the stem um, and we bunch it. Because we've been finding that we just cannot sell kale that well at our markets. I mean, kale is everywhere, but it's you know it's a great thing to sell because it's it, it's so prolific. But we found that the spigarello we can kind of harvest and bunch it just as fast. Uh, we we get about the same price for it. We get similar yields, but it's just a little bit different for people. It tastes like broccoli. It's got these nice soft kale-like leaves, and and no one's really afraid of it, and no one you know is is shying away from trying something new. Um, with that one because it's familiar. So that's been a really fun one. And we, we're growing. Yeah. We're doubling it again this year. All right. That's great. And then it seems like you are doing a lot with some different varieties of radicchio. Yeah. That's all experimental right now. We kind of just realized that people were willing, were willing to buy it. I think for so long people, you know, Farmers were saying, oh, no one will buy that. No, no one will buy that. And actually, we, when we started growing, we would say, oh, let's just plant a little bit and see how how it goes. And we've, we found that if you do only have six on your table, that it is true that no one will buy it. Um, but this past winter, I was just like, let's just do a bunch of varieties. We'll just, you know, set out a whole section. And we have had these mountains of radicchio at our markets. And that's when people are all of a sudden saying, oh, this is so interesting and, and willing to try it. And we, people are coming back for it. There's also, with these university towns, there's customers from all over the country and from all different, you know, walks of life. And so many people are even teaching me how to eat it. Um, so that has become a new a new popular item for us, which is really exciting because I have a lot of fun growing it. I really like that idea that when you have a lot of radicchio, all of a sudden people start buying it. Whereas if you do have just six of them on your stand, I mean, there is, of course, what I call the PhD of produce, right? Pile it higher and deeper and people people will be attracted to that. But I think it's also like if you've got six of them on your stand, then it's this then it's a weird thing. Right. Yeah. Whereas if you have a pile, then people look at it and go, well, why am I not eating that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny how it works that way. Have you found a lot of interest in your restaurant customers about the different Italian varieties? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's that's why I felt comfortable planting so much. 
Um, there's so many great Italian restaurants around here, and a lot of them have, you know, been open, you know, just five or so years, and some a lot longer. But they're just kind of hungry for for new things. I I mean, I have chefs emailing me just saying like, what's weird? What's different? Um, and, and you know, what's something new for me? And so they have definitely been some of our big buyers for the radicchio, which helps too because then I get tips from the chefs that I can share with the market customers. I find that the way to sell um, some of these radicchios is to say, oh, at this restaurant, you know, this is how they prepare it. And, and it's really, sim- it's, a, it's a lot of really simple preparations and, and people love, I think, to try, you know, and do what the chefs are doing. And what about the Japanese specialty varieties? Because we've had a lot of people on the show talk about their radicchio production, but mm-hmm. what about when you talk about the specialty varieties from Japan. Yeah, I'm actually I'm trying to think. We have have cut a good bit of those out. <laughs> we were doing um, a lot of uh, Asian greens in the first few years, and well, you know, we've we've had a hard time with our climate down here. It gets so hot, and they bolt so quickly, as well as trouble with uh, flea beetles. Um, they're not the easiest thing to farm down in this climate. It, we go very quickly from a cold winter to a very hot summer. But we do we do grow um, our daikon radishes and yeah I love yeah. I love the frying peppers um, we uh, found yeah. a few of, of the bigger for everyone has shishitos now and so we I mean I mean the Kitazawa seed catalog is something that we're going through a lot to see um, what's new it's the same thing it's like everyone knows shishito so we're just looking for something maybe a little bigger from a different region and, and see how they prepare it so we've had luck with some of the bigger frying peppers. Um, and then I think with that, then it's also the rice. We got the original seed from the Kitazawa, uh, seed company for one of our heirloom rice varieties. Okay. So there you go. Let's talk about rice. (laughs) I mean, okay. So for me now, and, and maybe this is just an ignorance issue, but to me, rice seems like a crop that comes from either California or the deep South not something that comes from North Carolina. So am I just am I just completely off base about that or are you guys doing something really weird and different? Hmm. I mean we're definitely doing something really weird and different for America, but I, I think rice has grown at most latitudes in Asia and Well, you know, I would grown all over the US and it's like in Louisiana and, and Texas uh-huh. and everything. I think it's I would I don't know. I think I would change that and say it's it's different for our region. But growing rice on an acre, you know, because that's the other thing that I think about, about, about rice. You know, I think about Lundberg family farms growing rice out in California, and they're not doing it on acres. They're doing it on hundreds or thousands of acres. And here you guys are doing it on this very small scale. Can you tell me more about how that works? So, I mean, our, our production system is, is fairly similar to vegetables. We, we plant it in three rows on a bed, uh, similar to just growing any three-row vegetable crop. I think we, we stuck with one-foot spacing in the row for everything. We actually did it all on plastic mulch this year um, with drip tape. And um, you know, you, we, we grew out starts in the greenhouse, um, transplanted them with the water wheel. It took a whole week to get it in the ground. And I mean... We're, we're trying to figure out better systems, more efficient systems to do that. But it's 
it's a it's a shelf stable crop that it's it's very high yielding um you know six thousand pounds an acre i think is would be a, a really good yield and we haven't quite hit that yet but if you can get a good price per pound at the market and through your your wholesale outlets it's you know kind of it's it's great to have something in the cooler that you can just you know pull out and take to market and People people really like it. It's it's delicious rice. It it tastes great. Um, it's a little bit different, and we 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 found people are 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 enjoying it. So, growing it just like you do the rest of the vegetables, but of course the harvest must be a little bit different. Uh huh. So we we, uh, we combine it. I went and found a old international whole type of combine. Uh, about 90 miles away on Craigslist and I got lucky that it was, it was still in service. The, uh, the farmer kept it around for in case his combine, uh, his, his bigger combine broke down on him. He could just go in there and finish the day's harvest with that. So it was a well-maintained machine and I just, you know, pulled it home nice and slow behind my pickup truck, 90 miles, but it's, it served us well. I've had a few, few mishaps with it. Just, you know, an old machine with, with a lot of moving parts, but it's, it does a great job and it's, it's really fascinating to work on. And it really just, it does an excellent job. I'm impressed with the, the grain that I've, I've uh, been able to harvest. And so with the combine, I, you know, I decided that I, if I had the combine on, on the ground and we, and we had a few acres free, I could figure out other places to use it. So this last year I actually harvested about five acres of different crops. Um, mostly cover crop seed. So I don't plan on harvesting my cover crops every year because I guess, you know, then they're not cover crops. But this year I grew about an acre and a half of buckwheat and two acres, of, a little over two acres of uh, cereal rye. My plan with that was originally to harvest the cover crop in two passes and maybe be able to get my, uh, get the red clover that was growing down below too. But it didn't quite work out with the timing on those when when each of those is ready, but it was nice to fill up our our grain cooler with plenty of field seed. Just you know, I don't have to worry about ordering it. I've just got it in the cooler, and I think you know I think it'll last a couple of years in there, and um, I can just go grab it whenever I need to put a field and cover crop. I reseeded you know most of our vegetable land with the with the rye this this year. Um, and I thought that was pretty neat to be spreading and using the seed that I'd combined off, off our own land. Oh, a fun closing of the loop there. Yeah, exactly. With the rice, so you're, you're harvesting that with the combine. There, is there a further cleaning step involved in getting that ready for sale? Yeah, so when you, when you harvest rice, it's green. And so you need to, you need to basically dry it down. Um, bring it down another five or ten percent moisture, and I was able to do that just piling it on a big uh, old hay wagon and putting putting a tarp down on the hay wagon and piling it high and putting it out in the sun during the day and turning it with a with a grading rake and then moving it inside at night to get it move it into the barn at night to get it out of the dew and was able to get it down to fourteen uh, percent moisture and then. There's a holing process. So each grain of rice has um, is the grain inside, and then there's a little paper hole on the outside that needs to be removed. 
and then you can send it through a cleaning process. And all of this processing we were able to do through Heinz Tomet at uh, Next Step Produce up in Maryland. He's kind enough to allow us to, to bring some crops up there in, in the early winter to, to get cleaned. And he's invested in quite a bit of machinery up there. It's really impressive to see. He's basically, his first year growing rice in a lot of grains was, was my first year there. And so I was seeing him, you know, from the ground up, you know, tinker and figure out what he needed for his systems. And we were able to keep in contact. And um, he visits down here and we go up there. And he's kind enough to, to help us out with cleaning for a reasonable, reasonable exchange. So it, it is something that requires some fairly specialized equipment to actually bring it to fruition. It really does. I mean, it's it's not something, you know, to get into lightly. It's it's not something we would we would be trying to do unless we had access to that uh, deholing and grain cleaning process. I, I, you know, I think we may end up investing in a fanning mill or a, a air screen cleaner, but. I think that's as far as we would like to take it, but there are other processes and, you know, the more money and time you want to spend on it, the, the better your product. Um, and Heinz is, uh, is this, you know, German Swiss guy, very exacting. So he's, he's, he's invested in a lot of really good equipment to, to get the grain clean. Are you making money on the rice? I mean, is it, does it actually pan out on a per acre per labor hour unit basis? This is our third year growing, and this last year, I feel like, you know, our harvest that we took this this last fall, I think, will pay um, some return. Where, you know, our our first few years, we had some crop failures, and there was a lot of, you know, getting to learn our equipment and our systems. But I I think, you know, if we can charge what we need to charge, we can we can make money on it. It's, it's, it's nice to have income coming in, in January. You know, does it add up, you know, if I could grow an acre of tomatoes in July and sell them, I, I think, you know, we would do that, but, um, we we don't have the markets for that at the, at the price we want for tomatoes. I think this year, this year Uh is the first year that it's, it's, it seems to, we've yielded enough and, um, we, we sell it at markets for, uh, $8 a pound, uh, same for wholesale. Um, and I think this year was the first time when we were wondering if it would all sell. We, we harvested enough that it was, um, you know, we we're wondering if after the novelty, if people would want to pay $8 a pound for rice. But I mean, I'm finding at my markets that, you know, there are a few people that are eating it every week and they're coming back for a new bag. And there are so many people who just love that it's it's there and it's local and, and people are being really supportive of that. Um, so it's definitely something that, that is making us money, especially here in the winter where we've got a lot, uh, we don't have a lot coming out of the ground. Um, yeah, it's doing well. You said $8 a pound. Yes. It's really good rice. (laughs) I mean, I've never, I've never sold it to someone who came back and said, Oh, it was, it was just okay. I mean, you can really taste the freshness, and and I think it's something to do with the varieties too. Um, mostly, I think because it's brown rice, we have not removed you know the outer layer to make it white rice, but it doesn't. Those oils haven't had time to spoil, 
And so the, the flavor is just something totally new and fresh. Um, and, and yeah, everyone is, is noticing that. So it's, it's, it's going all right. So when you said that, I'm actually remembering reading, you know, this has been 20 years ago, but in a macrobiotic cookbook, actually recommending that people eat white rice instead of brown rice because those brown, because the oils in the brown rice got rancid the, the uh-huh. were, that were left in that outer layer. That's, that's what you're talking about here, right? With the flavor. It is, and I think that's why people will say, oh, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people say, oh, I don't like brown rice, and, and that's the flavor. It's kind of that, you know, you, you associate it with this just kind of like earthy, healthy thing that you have to eat, um, but when it's fresh like this, it, I don't think a lot of people tell the difference from white rice, um, and even a lot of our chefs have been using it for risottos, which is normally something that I don't think any chef would say is okay to do with brown rice, <laughs> but because it's so fresh and light, uh, it, it still works really well. Wow. Okay. Okay. Um, and is that something you find yourself having to explain to every customer that comes along? Or is this something where people are looking at it going, Oh, fresh brown rice. We know what to expect from this. Yeah. No one really seems to know how good it's going to be or you know I don't think new crop rice I think it's popular in in Japan I think but not so much here but people are definitely curious just for the fact that it's grown here and so we start a lot of conversations just saying like what is this what is this all about and and uh, you know I find that customers seem to all kind of gather around and now that we have enough people that are really on board with it I, I find some people are selling it to the, you know, this person standing next to them. Like I had this last week and you won't believe how good it is. And the word, the word spreads. So yeah, it's not something people expect, but um, they're willing to give it a go once. And then we get them hooked. <laughs> Isn't that the best when you've got a customer at farmer's market who turns to the stranger next to them and says, you have to try this. <laughs> I think it works every time. Yeah. It's wonderful. Is it, is it just one kind of rice that you're growing or are you, do you have, I think that Miles mentioned a couple of different varieties. Yeah. Um, so we, in starting out, kind of had a hard time finding the seeds for these, for these different crops. Um, but we've scoured and, and found from the Kitazawa catalog, we, there's one called Koshihikari. Um, that's a, a Japanese heirloom sushi rice that's actually pretty well known um, in Japan. Um, and then just kind of looking through seed catalogs. So we have a variety called Blue Bonnet that we found at Baker Creek. And that is actually a, a long grain rice that from my research I found it was, was grown a lot in Texas in the 70s. Um, and then from Southern Exposure, we have one called Mong Sticky. Um, it's a it's a sticky rice that is one of the sweetest and, and best flavored ones. And so when we first grew out, we started on about a quarter acre and we had to buy all those seeds. But since then, we've been saving our own seeds and we found that these three varieties um, do really well for us. Just It's nice to have the variety at market and, you know, some of them yield better than others. But um, it's, it's good to, to have something ta- to talk about and for different people to try different, different types. How much talking do you have to do to sell the rice? Um... I found that, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, it's familiar, but it's not exactly something you've known. I think those are all always my favorite crops. And so, you know, someone's looking at a bag of rice. They're not, 
they're not so confused. Um, we put on there the the ratio of, of water to rice and, and the cook time. And, and I think people want to know most about why it's $8. Um, but we, we really explain that, you know, we're, we're trying to do this nearby. We, we really want to provide local grains and that we think that the quality and flavor is really worth trying. And um, I find that most people are willing to try it once. And then I find that a lot of those people have been coming back. So it's nice that it's not, you know, something so, so crazy that they've never tried before. And is this something that you see an expanding acreage in your future with this crop? Or is this something that you think is like a, an acre and, and that's just where you're going to, you're just going to keep going at that level? I think an acre is, is a good amount of rice to grow. Um, so we have 10 acres um, that we can grow on and it gets challenging when you're growing, you know, large acreages of, of one thing to figure out the rotations and where to, you know, where to move things around. I think one acre of rice, especially unless we can figure out a, you know, more, more efficient systems, that's, that fits in our production scale. We, we did do it on plastic this year, um, just as kind of to keep the moisture in and, and to make sure it worked well, but it's, it's something that we don't want to continue doing. I mean, that's a lot of plastic. So as we kind of work on our systems, we're, we're trying to, to eliminate that as well. And so let's talk about dry beans. Cause I feel like that's, am I right that that's in the same kind of growing category and marketing category as the, as the fresh rice? So the beans have been, they've actually impressed me there. Everyone loves the beans. If, if we could grow more, I would grow the beans. Um, and the problem comes in that, that they really yield much less than, than the rice does. And w without specialized equipment, it's, it's really challenging and almost disheartening. I go out there with the combine and, you know, combine these, these beautiful beans that I've taken care of all season. And there are so many that get left on the ground. They'll, um, they'll shatter if I, if I can't get to them, you know, in the right day, they'll, they'll shatter. There's a, there's a time this season where I was able to get out there and, um, in the morning and did a, did a bunch of beans and then I had to, had to take care of some other stuff. I left it to the next day and just, just overnight, uh, with some like warm winds it had dried the pods more and the beans started falling out ahead of the, ahead of the combine, but everyone loves them. We actually, we even did, uh, some fresh beans, which is something that I would like to do more of, um, kind of a limited time thing. We'll do one or two picks of the beans when they're still, uh, moist and fresh and go out there and get those, bring those to market. Everyone's really excited about those. They, they taste delicious. Is that like a shell pea where you sell it in the shell or is that something where you guys are actually taking them out of the shell before you sell those fresh beans to the customers? Yeah, we'll go ahead and shell them. Um, we we like how it looks and kind of that value added quality of that. If we're charging, you know, to charge what we need, I feel like we should go ahead and shell them for people. Um, we have a small shelling machine that we got uh, Roto Fingers PB and Sheller back when we were we were planning to do more acreage of um, of shelling peas in the spring, but our soils it that we have a hard time with, uh, with legumes in the spring. Our, our soils are a little wet and cold, but 
so they're, they're, they're an interesting crop because I was able to do a double crop. Um, so I, we did our, I was able to grow them on the same ground that we, we did our spring cabbages and lettuce. So it was, it was kind of a nice, you know, almost like a cover crop for the, for the late summer for that land. So I felt like even though they didn't yield a lot, I was still, you know, actively farming that land, managing it, keeping the weeds out, growing a crop and, you know, hopefully returning some organic matter to the soil and maybe nitrogen because they're legumes. It seemed to fit, fit the schedule well there. You mentioned having some challenges at the, at the harvest time. Are you growing those beans on bare ground or are those on plastic like the rice is? Yeah, those are on bare ground, two rows to the bed, um, and I cultivate them with our, our G tractor. So pretty much just, a, a, again, a standard vegetable crop style of, of growing and maintaining. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yep. So you, you go through and combine those, and then, again, you must have some cleaning that you have to do after the combining to actually get them ready to put in a bag and, and sell as food at farmer's market. Yep. And again, we were lucky to be able to rely on Heinz to, uh, to clean some of those. We were able to take them up there, and he's got a few different machines. The air screen is, is really great. That'll get a lot of the uh, broken and uh, large and small beans out and other trash. And then he actually has a, a really interesting machine, a color sorter, which actually has a little eye, a camera eye, and an air jet that'll kind of blow out any 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 split beans. Yeah, pretty incredible piece of equipment. Really wonderful to have access to that. Yeah, it's 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 been great. And then for for packaging these, I I see on your on your Instagram feed that you've got these in relatively small bags. How are you guys getting those into the bags and getting the bags weighed out? Yeah, we um we sell them in 1 pound bags. Um, and it's still pretty much uh, all kind of done done by hand. Um, you know, it's something that I might like to mechanize later a little better. But just as we're experimenting with all of this, um, we just we got some some poly bags from Uline. We we scoop them in the one pound bags. I I've made some labels that we're we're putting on there, um, and then we have um, an impulse sealer from from Uline as well that makes a nice little crimp um, and maybe takes a little longer than it should. We've been looking at other other ways of, of maybe putting a band on them, um, but it's a really nice look at market. And I really like the clear packaging um, so people can see, you know, the different the different beans and, and you know, they're just so beautiful. Um, I feel like we kind of look to Rancho Gordo and, and, and other companies and see, you know, how they're selling theirs and, and, and what works. And so um, we're doing all that by hand now, but it doesn't take too long. We get a little line going and it, and it works all right. With the dry beans, I mean, okay, so the rice, when I think of North Carolina, I'm like, I'm like hot and humid and sticky. And so I go like, okay, rice. But then I think about beans and I go hot and humid and sticky. And, and that doesn't strike me as being dry bean climate. Yeah, we've we've been working, um, we've been trialing so many different varieties um, just to see what works for us. I mean, a lot of what's often grown around here is is sort of the field peas, like like black eyed peas and and lima beans, and that's what's been grown around here for so long. Um, but we really wanted something that's a, that's more specialty, and so um, 
you're, so you're just really experimenting your way through the varieties to find things that are going to work for you guys. Yeah, we are. So we found that growing our, you know, like a white bean isn't a, isn't a great idea. We'll get kind of this, this rust uh, color on it. Um, so we've been going more toward the black beans and the speckled beans uh, because of that. But I think I really like growing them. I think on our scale, you know, it's it's possible to get away with these these like more finicky crops than um, you know, I wouldn't go and plant out 30 acres of, of dried beans because it might be difficult to, to get everything done in the windows you need. Um, but on the, on the acre, one or two acre scale, it's, you can, you know, watch carefully and get things done at the appropriate time. I, we've had, we've had pretty good success with, um, with the beans, you know, keeping a careful eye on everything. And and one of the other things with these beans, because we are harvesting with the combine, is we're, we're looking for varieties that grow really straight and tall and kind of have their beans sitting up high. And so, you know, that's something else. With As we're testing different varieties, you know, we want something that the combine can catch because we're not going to, we're not really looking to any specialized equipment. So we've we found about three varieties right now, and I keep doing little test plots to hopefully find a few more that'll work with our system. And as you guys are saving your own seeds from the rice and the beans, are you doing really intentional selections with that, or are you just taking seed out of the crop that you're harvesting? We're just taking seed out of the crop. We're not doing any... Uh any selection at all. Um, with the rice, sometimes, you know, we can look at the seed, kind of maybe go through it before we plant again to make sure we don't have any cross-contamination. Do the same thing with the beans, but um, we're not selecting for, for traits or anything. Okay. All right. With that, we're going to stop here, take a quick break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Angie Rains and Miles Ockel from Southwind Produce in Rougemont, North Carolina. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy, where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I have worked with BCS tractors for over 24 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. And I am not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheel cousins and a wide array of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, no throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, water pumps, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com and by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easy to work with your buyers, saving you time, increasing efficiency, reducing mistakes, and streamlining order management. Farmer's Web helps you manage orders from buyers who place them online, but also those that order by phone or email. Use Farmer's Web to generate a product catalog for buyers, allow buyers to view your real-time availability online, and create harvest lists and packing slips for your orders. Farmers Web helps you inform your buyers of delivery routes, pickup locations, lead times, and more, while helping you keep track of special pricing and customer information. You can't underestimate this stuff. 
You can also download detailed financial reports. Farmers Web offers a free account type and a flat monthly fee on paid plans. You can pause, cancel, or switch plan types anytime. Check out a demo video and Farmers Web guide to working with wholesale buyers at farmersweb.com. All right, and we're back with Angie Rains and Miles Okel from Southwind Produce in Rougemont, North Carolina. So you guys started off at this Breeze Incubator Farm. And tell me a little bit more about how that worked and, and how or if that was helpful when you guys started farming out on your own land with your own equipment. I mean, it was a great benefit. Um, Orange County, the county over from where we are now, puts it on. and. The idea is that they're they're trying to incubate need new farm businesses. Um, Orange County has uh, more populated Chapel Hill in the south and up north. There are all these old tobacco farms, and um, that's becoming less profitable. The area will will most likely remain in farmland because a lot of the soils out there don't perk for septic systems. So there's there's a lot of land out there, and I, I guess they just want people to to do something with it. But it was a great, it was great in that it provided access to land, um, a little bit of mentorship, but it was more like a, you know, a peer mentorship. So there were two other farmers out there in a similar situation, starting one, one person was doing a mixed flour and vegetable operation. The, uh, the other one, just a vegetable and I guess a few flowers, but we're all kind of out there, um, each renting an acre or, or two and sharing a prep area and a well and uh, use of a tractor. Um, the thing that was really great about it was it allowed us to start our business with minimal investment and kind of test the market. You know, we're entering a, a crowded market. There are a lot of small farms in the area and we weren't sure if there was room for one more. Um, and, you know, through through the incubator farm, we could we could get moving, get get product, and start going to market, and also just you know see if we liked it. Like I'd used, I mean I'd I'd worked on other farms, um, a season on a CSA farm, you know, a few summers in college, and then a few years in Maryland, and that, then down in North Carolina, and you know I didn't know how it would go working for myself, being the decision maker. And I got to try that out and see if I'd like going to Saturday market every, every week. And, you know, I, it, it was kind of a, you know, a low, a low risk way to, to, to start and see if it, see if we liked it. Yeah. I mean, Miles actually uh, started it and I was, you know, I was still unsure too. So I was working on area farms that first year and still kind of trying to learn as much as I can. And, and then, you know, me joining him, it was the same thing. It was just like, how do we work together? You know, um, what makes sense for our business? Should we both be out there, you know, farming together? Should we kind of split our, our, you know, what we do? And um, it's just been a good way for us to, yeah, definitely test the market, see, see, you know, who's interested in our product. And, and work together and see how that goes because it's it's hard. I mean, after we bought our land, we learned even more. It's it's really hard to have so many decisions to make together. Um, and so having that market and having product already as we transitioned into our new land was just kind of this nice um, 
little bit of safety net that made us feel more comfortable, you know, taking, taking those risks. When you talk about learning to work together, was it different on the incubator farm than it was when you guys started your own farm? Did things change for the two of you? Um, once we started building our infrastructure and kind of making uh, decisions on, on, you know, kind of big projects, we, I think we really learned at that point that it's, it's really better of us to kind of divide up and, and just, you know, kind of let Miles take his projects and I'll take my, my projects. And um, um, I think it was hard for us to kind of, we don't like to sit down together and, and make sure we're both on the same page with each, with each thing. And, you know, I would say like, all right, I trust you to, to figure out like where the well is going to go and get all that handled. And then I'll go back and start, you know, doing our crop planning. And um, yeah, I think making these bigger decisions really, really left us to kind of get good at our own things. And, and I think we've, we've been doing pretty well that way. Do you agree, Miles? I think we're doing great. Yeah. <laughs> better and better. But that um, time, but that time on the incubator farm. So what I'm hearing is that that was, that was important for just kind of getting your toe in the water without taking huge amounts of risk. Yeah, exactly. So Angie, you just mentioned, you know, where the well's going to go. And I noticed on your Instagram feed that you guys have dug an irrigation pond recently. And so did you guys buy blank land or did you guys buy an existing farm? We, yeah, we bought, uh, this farm had been a tobacco farm for, for generations. And then for about the past 10 years, it's been on a, a wheat soy rotation, all done very conventionally. Um, but it, it was there was no infrastructure there was no well um, there was there were no buildings a few old rundown tobacco farms was about all there was um, and that's that's kind of what we wanted I mean we we had looked for a while for a farm with maybe a nice little house on it but um, you know in this area uh, we, there just wasn't something that fit all of our needs so we kind of uh, hey let's just start from scratch and so uh, that second year. On our incubator farm, we we went ahead and got that land, and you know, as in between farming, we would do things like yeah, pick out a well site. Um, we put up a greenhouse, and um, you know, tried to get some irrigation going. The problem was our well; they dug 550 feet down, and it was still just a four-gallon-a-minute well, which was not great for 10 acres of produce. Um, and so it took us a while to really get all the proper infrastructure. It was about another year before we were able to dig this pond. Um, but now we've got about a 10 acre foot pond, which is, which really meets our needs and has allowed us to grow so much more this year. And we're just slowly building every winter. I mean, we're adding more and more. And so do you, have you guys put up a house? Do you guys live on the farm? We've got a little, a little cabin that we're, that, uh, Miles and a friend built about two years ago, and so we're 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 situated there and and still hoping to grow a little more and get a little more space in the future. And then you had mentioned having a specific grain cooler. Is that something different than having a vegetable cooler? So it's it's pretty similar. We we just got these finished uh, this fall. Um, we went ahead and put in three 
three coolers, three walk-ins, one for vegetables, one one for warmer vegetables, and then one were just to keep uh, seed in. Um, it's you know we can we can cool it down nice and low, or we can raise it up higher if if we have something else we want to put in there. We just wanted flexibility, and we kept finding you know we would have another crop that we need to put at a different temperature somewhere else, and so we went went ahead and did like a three three door cooler. Yeah, the grain cooler. So we're kind of doubling that as a tomato cooler in the summer right now. You know, you've talked about selling the rice and the beans in the winter time at market. Are you guys also selling vegetables in the winter time at market? Well, we're, sell- <laughs> we're selling what we've got. This winter has been um, pretty unusual for North Carolina. Um, we we do have one high tunnel uh, up, but we were were had planned to save that for kind of late spring crops. So it's got some baby arugula and lettuces in there now, but we had planted about two acres of things to harvest throughout the winter. And then, I mean, we've, we've gotten temperatures down to negative two, which is really unusual around here this year. And we have had about 10 inches of snow, which is really unusual around here. And so this year has kind of really tested, um, you know, the things that we can do outside, the things that are worthwhile. But, um, We've got a, a few things that are hanging on there, especially the radicchio has just powered us through. It's so nice to have something fresh and green. Um, and luckily, I kind of overdid it this year on those. So right now we've got we've got kale and radicchio and the rest is kind of smushed under the covers. <laughs> and you said a high tunnel. Now, you guys have a fairly large high tunnel, don't you? We do. It's uh, 30 by 200. Um when when we were working at Next Step, he had um, rather large tunnels as well, and I kind of just, I guess I got used to having a full two hundred foot row in in a in the tunnel, and you know, we just decided to go ahead and and put one of those up. I think with the thermal mass, it'll stay warmer in the winter, and we also wanted it tall enough to be able to drive the tractor in through the end wall. Um, through, you know, all the way up against the sidewall. So, but I mean, I guess, it, I guess it's large. I mean, I, I really like it. Um, you know, I can use all the same tools and production methods that I, that I use outside as inside. And it, you know, kind of fits our system pretty well. I know in a recent interview, we were talking to somebody who has actually like two or three different production systems on their farm. You know, one one portion of the farm that's managed with a two-wheel BCS tractor and another portion of the farm that's managed with completely different size beds and completely different tooling with four-wheel tractors. And I think it's interesting because I, I feel like both of those things have some advantages. But man, is it nice to be able to to use the same system in, you know, both inside and outside and everywhere on your farm. Yeah, it works for us. We, we use the same standard 200 foot bed on most of the farm. I mean, you mentioned having the, having the G for weed control. What are you guys doing for cultivating the edges of the plastic? I mean, if you talk about an acre of plastic on your rice and I assume on some of the other vegetables as well, that becomes a pretty important, a pretty important undertaking on the farm. We've had, you know, mixed success with a few different things. Um, 
Last year it did rain a bunch, um, and they I kind of got behind on our early melon planting. But I've had good success with just kind of clearing the pathways with, uh, I guess it's like a shovel uh, behind the behind our big tractor on a three point hitch on a toolbar, and that you know that throws a little bit of soil and kind of cracks it up. And if you're if you get it at the right time, that'll that will disturb the whole area. And then if if that doesn't quite work, I can go back in with the G and get kind of close to the edge, get a knife under the under the plastic bed, and one of the uh, uh, bezariti wheel, or um, and put that right on the edge. And just I I have to do that row by row. I haven't figured out a good way to to get both sides of the of the edge um, at once, but it's still a lot faster than going at, going at it with a hoe. Well, yeah, and, and I think if you can, even if you have to go up one side and turn around and come back down the other, like you said, it's it it still beats yeah, hell out of hand weeding. Exactly, it still works pretty well. As I think more and more about that cultivation, about cultivation, um, I would like a system that I could get both sides of that. And I'm also doing, you know, on my bare on my bare ground stuff. I'm I'm getting, I'm usually just doing the row, the outside row, and then half the inside row. I haven't quite gotten gotten able to get it to my liking where I can get both sides at once and do a whole bed. So I'm still doing half a half a row, half a bed at a time for cultivation. Yeah, that's something we're really looking at this year, this spring. We're kind of we have our our dream list of of equipment and we're kind of uh, going through what might work for us. You know, we're we're trying to eliminate a lot of the plastic. I feel like we we took it on just because we knew there, we felt there were so many challenges with starting the farm and getting everything, you know, exactly how we want it. So now that we've got a little more infrastructure and we feel like we've got a little more of, of a flow going, we are ready to kind of, to kind of figure out some, some more cultivation and some, to really dial that in. I want to pivot back just a little bit to the, to the chicories, but while we're talking about infrastructure, because my memory is that, that radicchio is basically deer candy and <laughs> you guys are surrounded by woods. Yeah. We've had, so in the last few years we've put up a temporary deer fence, just uh electric. We, we put in the tall T posts to make an eight foot fence and just strung some of that uh, electric twine. And maybe I think it was five strands for, for that height in we had decent control of that as long as, you know, we could send someone around with a weed whacker and keep the fence hot, but eventually it'll get in. And, you know, once they get in, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to get, uh, get them back out again. And we've had, we have, we have some serious deer pressure where we are. I've, I've pulled in the driveway and counted 22 deer at once. And, you know, once a herd like that gets in, you know, they're, they'll eat everything. And, What's even worse is like you know they'll go and chomp at every other melon, and then they'll 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 sit down the street and sell all the melons too, and that's you know something that I I just can't can't stand. But so we're putting in a a big deer fence this year. <laughs> yeah, we're putting in a hard deer fence. Um, we're doing eight foot woven wire, um, and we're we're going to get basically all the cleared land, all of our cropping acreage inside that hard fence. And it's it's a little bit more it's it's a bit more of an expense, but we're I can do all the work myself. Um, uh, me and my my hired guy for the winter, um, and so it's you know the material cost, but it'll just be great to not have to 
to manage, you know, week by week, you know, running a weed whacker and is the fence hot? Did I forget to plug it in? Did it get unplugged? Um, you know, I think that it'll, it'll really aid, aid our management. It'll be, it'll be nice. And it's, it's a 30 year fence. So I feel, you know, let's get it right and get it done. And then we'll, we'll be able to, to not worry as much about our, about our vegetable crop. I'm excited about that too. There, I think there is more than one night when I've, I've saw that the deer had gotten in to our fence and, and just camped out in the field with our dog just to protect the, the chicories as right as they were ready for harvest, but they've gotten a few. I always did feel like that would be the ultimate solution is just to like sleep <laughs> in the vegetables, um, which never really seemed like that bad of an idea to me, really. You know, you get a nice soft tilled bed. You could really, you know, you could really work with that. <laughs> so Miles, you mentioned having a hired hand this winter. What does your employment situation look like at Southwind Produce? So we've, we've been able to rely on my brother the last few years, which has been great. Um, he doesn't exactly have a farming passion, but he's, he's a great guy and, um, a good worker. And we've also, you know, we've kind of been stepping it up year to year, hiring more people. Last year, our plan was to have three full-time employees. Um, we ended up having two and a part-time, um, you know, things happen, but, um, we, you know, so this in this next year we'd like to add add another person as well. Um, we, you know, I really like the work, but it's you know managing a whole farm is I, I don't know, it's pretty difficult to to get everything done if if I'm the one out there picking all the tomatoes and so yeah that that's that's how it's going to look I think for this year. But yeah we. I like to keep one person on or offer employment to one person for the winter. And then that way you kind of get, you know, the pick of who who's around for the winter time and try to incentivize them to stay on for the next year. Um, and usually, you know, I've got plenty of, plenty of farm work for people to do in the winter time. It kind of takes some of the, some of the pressure off and we have time to get all our planning done and, and maybe even take a, a few days off here and there. Right. And still get the deer fence built. Still get the deer fence built or the high tunnel or the, yeah, the barn or what have you. Yeah. We, we also have a, I have a part-time person who comes and helps me with the, the vegetable stuff, you know, throughout the winter. There's a, there's a really good pool of applicants around here. There's so many small farms and there's so many interested people. It's been really fun, um, you know, kind of showing people, you know, how, how we're starting our farm. And a lot of the people that are working for us are, are interested in starting their own too. Um, so yeah, we've, we've been really lucky and had some really great people come through. I think it's something that I hadn't realized before I started doing the podcast, but that is, has just sort of incidentally become apparent to me because of the number of people that I've ended up interviewing from the research triangle area of North Carolina. You guys really are a hotspot for small farms out there. It's incredible. We actually, when we moved here, um, you know, I, I came down to North Carolina from Maryland because my family's from North Carolina and I wanted to be nearby. And But I was telling Miles, like, oh, I don't think we should come to the Triangle. It's like, there's too many farms. I just don't think we can, you know, get a, you know, get a good spot there. So our, our goal at, 
for the first year was we would, you know, learn from these great farms and then maybe go over to Charlotte or maybe go west a little to where, you know, it was less served for small farms. But, you know, we just met so many great people and we, we had such a fun community that I just we couldn't leave. <laughs> I just didn't want to, you know, go out. It's hard to live in the middle of the country, you know, if you don't have like-minded people that you can kind of talk to and, and, um, you know, do this with. And so, um, it's been, it's been really nice to be here. And that was another thing with the incubator farm. It was like, can, you know, can we get into these good markets? They're really competitive. Um, and so, you know, working on those farms on the incubator farm, that's when we got into our first kind of big market and we thought, all right, I think, you know, I think it's safe to say that, you know, we can, we can do it here. So we stayed. So I think it's such an interesting dynamic for small vegetable farms. And, you know, I think this is true for other businesses as well. Like you would think that being in a crowded market means there's no room, but in fact, a lot of times it means that you've got a growing happening marketplace where you actually have an opportunity to find a niche. So What's your niche? What have you guys done to stand out in this crowded marketplace in the research triangle in North Carolina? Yeah, yeah, it's been definitely something we we thought about um, from the minute we started our farm, um, really how to to compete with the people around us and how to also carry something that the market doesn't have. So in addition to the rice and the beans and the grains we're sort of starting on, We've really just put a big emphasis on on the quality of our crops and the the way that our display looks. Um, we kind of go through a little more painstaking time during prep to really make sure that you know everything's looking as great as it can and that you know we're not sending damaged goods. Um, just trying to make sure that you know we're really looking all right next to our neighbors. We're also going for abundance. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the time, we we aim to have a full stand at the end of market as well as the beginning of market. And while it's, we might be bringing some product home at the end of the day, it's still, it's still nice to have a full stand and kind of you know wow people even if they show up at eleven thirty instead of just at eight thirty. And it's it's not always easy to do that or possible, but that's, that's our, that's one of our goals. How do you make sure that you're bringing enough product to market? I mean, are you guys tracking your sales? How does that actually, how does that actually manifest on the ground for you guys? This year was our first year. We tried to kind of get good at tracking what we send and what we bring back for market before this year, we were just kind of doing it by feel. But, uh, this year we were making up a sheet Every week, they would have the items on it and how much we were taking, and then a little spot to write how much um, we we brought back or what time we sold out. But you know, we tried to keep keep up with that, and I think we did an okay job all year making sure we did the, do that. But there is still some some feel to it, uh, just kind of knowing your market and trying to do your best to. To, to bring what what should go to go to each market you know that that what time you sold out piece was when we added that to our record keeping for farmers market that was something that really jumped our sales because you know if if all you know is that I took 20 bunches of carrots to market and I sold 20 bunches of carrots but you don't know whether you sold out at eight o'clock in the morning or at 
1159 when the market was ending, you don't really have any basis for deciding how much stuff you should bring next week or for that same week the next year. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, the timestamps on our sheets have really been helpful with, with learning, especially with all the different markets, you know, because the, the way shoppers act at, at each of those is so different. Sometimes it's really hard to map, and it's definitely not something I can do from memory. All right. That's great. With that, we're going to turn to our lightning round here. First, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. When you're growing transplants, all of the investments you've made in plant materials, heat, labor, and overhead depend on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And if you're an organic grower, you're probably using a media based on compost, and you should be looking for the best compost. Most Organic potting soils have two basic parts. There's, there's the compost, and then there's everything else. At Vermont Compost Company, Carl Hammer and his crew are very intentional about the inputs they use in their compost. While they're making use of waste products, waste disposal is not their primary goal. Ingredients are sourced consciously and with the end in mind. The same goes for the everything else part. And everything go, then, that goes into a Vermont compost potting soil has a purpose. Okay? Now, fully compost to compost, top quality ingredients, and a real sense for the art and the science of plant production are combined with a real commitment to organic growing professionals to create a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com. Angie, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. And um, at least right now, I think my favorite tool is is our cold storage, um, something that I've been thinking a lot about this winter, um, just with it being so hard to farm with all the temperature fluctuations and not really knowing, you know, what's coming at us, that um, we have a lot of potential just with our storage to to do more grains and to do more storage crops and um, to really think about, you know, new income streams from, from things that we can go ahead and get out of the ground before the winter and, and kind of sell through the you know, through the winter when, when the, when the weather's not really cooperating. (laughs) Well, and, and I don't know what you guys have found, but I remember one of the big things when we got our cold storage, which was about halfway through our first year at Rock Spring Farm, was that all of a sudden it gave us the ability with those farmer's market sales to not be so dependent on the weather. You know, if if it was going to rain on Friday, we could harvest for Saturday farmer's market suddenly on Thursday or Wednesday or even Tuesday if we if we could get that stuff in and take good care of it. Absolutely, yeah. Miles, what's your favorite tool on the farm? So this is a hard one for me because I really like tools. I mean, I guess it'd be the, the best tool for the job, but right now it's... I think it's the my my little pull type combine. It's just been a really uh, fun experience learning how to how this machine works, and you know I've had my trouble with it, but it's been a it does such a great job of what it does. It's it's a it's a pleasure to use when it's when it's when it's running well. Angie, what's Miles's farming superpower? <laughs> yeah. Um... You know, with with buying this farm as it was, just kind of a blank slate, I found that 
that's something he's really incredible is is just seeing the big picture and and seeing things um you know five or six steps in advance i I find that it's something I really struggle with is, you know, seeing past step two because I'm so involved in what's going on. But um, he's done an amazing job of just, you know, building things in the right place so that three years later they work really great and, and you know, creating systems that we've really been able to grow into. Um, yeah, my mind doesn't work like that. So I'm really impressed by it. And Miles, same question to you. What's Angie's farming superpower? She's an amazing cook. Uh, the highlight of the day around the farm is uh, eating lunch. Um, we she cooks uh, she cooks work lunch for the crew and myself, and it's always delicious. And you know, you're when you're out there working hard, and you get to think about oh, in another hour, you know, I get to go and sit down and eat this great meal of all this food we grew we grew ourselves on our farm. It's the highlight of the day, and she's she's a great cook. And Angie, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Yeah, well, I definitely am still my beginning farmer self, but um, <laughs> your your beginning beginning farmer self. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's still something I I try and tell myself regularly. I think is to just is to go easy on yourself. I think that both physically and mentally. I mean, um, you know your back is something to always be paying attention to because <laughs> it's talking to you sometimes when it's potato season and, and you're just trying to get things done. Um, but also then just, just kind of being easy on yourself with, with mistakes you make and, um, and just learning and understanding that it's part of the process and, and that, you know, every mistake, I guess, is another chance to do better next time and, and that everyone does it. <laughs> Miles, how about you? If you could go back in time and tell your beginning, beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Something that I try to focus on is having a an idea of the end goal, and it's it's a lot easier if if you if you get a good idea of where you want to be or you know what what exactly you're trying to do. You don't get bogged down in in your little decisions you have to make and or get frustrated by uh, small problems. Um, so, you know, try to take a step back and look at the bigger picture and, you know, take some time to think about what the bigger picture is. Like, where are you going? What does this fit for for where I want to be? Or, you know, just to, to think of everything more, I don't know if it's holistically, but for, for a longer term, you know, it's, we're getting into this for, for the long haul and, you know, you don't want to set yourself up for failure or just have to redo everything a thousand times or I think, I think that's it. Take, try to take the long view of things would, would, would be what I would say. It's a superpower. Angie and Miles, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris. All right, so wrapping things up here, I will say again that this is episode 158 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Southwind. That's S-O-U-T-H-W-I-N-D. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America, and by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. 
Visit OsborneSeed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. You can also talk to us in the show notes. You can tell your friends about the podcast on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. It really does make a difference. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running. <laughs>